Welcome to Behavioural Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioural science and how it is made. I'm Yitzhak Rasuli and I'm a PhD student in economics at Oxford University. And today I'm delighted to be speaking to Shengru Li. Shengru is an assistant professor at Harvard and most of his work is at the intersection of behavioural economics and economic theory. So Shengru, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. So today we're going to be talking about Shengru's very influential paper in which he introduces the idea of an obviously dominant strategy. So Shengru, perhaps you could start by telling us what exactly is an obviously dominant strategy and how does it contrast with the more traditional notion of a dominant strategy? So I guess the easiest way to illustrate these is to think about an ascending auction. So you're bidding for a good and it's like the auctioneer is calling out prices and the price is going up and up and you can choose at which point you want to quit the auction irrevocably. And the thought goes, okay, if you know that your value for the good is, say, $100, you have a dominant strategy in an ascending auction. You should bid until the price hits $100, and then you should quit. Now, how do we know that's a dominant strategy? Here's an argument that we could make. We could say, look, suppose the price is less than 100 If you quit now, you get nothing. If you keep bidding, then mm-hmm. either you'll win at a price less than 100 or you'll lose and get nothing. But it's clearly better to keep bidding than to quit now. And in reverse, if the price is above 100, we could say, look, if you quit now, you'll get nothing. If you keep bidding, well, in the best case, you'll lose and get nothing. But if you, you know, in the worst case, you might actually just win the object at a loss. And so notice the thing about this is that at each point you're playing this game, at any point you're thinking of deviating from your dominant strategy, every outcome from deviating is no better than the outcomes you might get from persisting with the dominant strategy. And so that's what it means to be obviously dominant. I see. Right. So just to put it a bit differently to check, both I've understood it and perhaps further help the listeners understand it. So you're sort of telling me that, you know, we can imagine the set of outcomes which might emerge if I deviate. And we can imagine the set of outcomes which will emerge if I don't deviate. And actually, we have this kind of setwise dominance where all of the outcomes in the sort of deviating set are weakly worse than all of the outcomes in the original Absolutely. set. Is that right? Absolutely. That's entirely the idea. So weak dominance is a state-wise comparison, right? It says for each state, for each profile of my opponent's strategies, I should do better with the dominant strategy. Obvious dominance is really making two differences to that. It's saying, first, let's make this a setwise comparison. Let's ask that every possible outcome, never mind the state, from playing the dominant strategy should be better than any possible outcome from the deviation. But the second bit is it's saying, let's not calculate all of the deviations at the start of the game. If a deviation isn't going to choose differently right now, let's cross that bridge when we come to it. Let's wait until we hit some information set where we would actually need to choose differently from the dominant strategy. And then let's do this setwise comparison then. Right, perfect. So I'm going to ask a few questions about that. But just to sort of close this brief expository section, can you give listeners a very quick sense of the characterization theorems which you prove in the original paper? So roughly in the paper, there are You know, I I offer two theorems that say, that give different interpretations of what obvious dominance is. One theorem is essentially about a a kind of agent who's confused about which game he's playing. So there's, it turns out that there's a way of capturing an agent who is unable to reason contingently, unable to think state by state. And the way you do this is by partitioning games 
into equivalence classes that have similar possibilities for each strategy you might play, even though these possibilities are jumbled up state by state. And one of the theorems I prove is to say that obviously dominant strategies are exactly the strategies that are dominant in every game in one of those equivalence classes. And what that means is that without reasoning state by state, without needing to sort of think contingently in this way, they can be recognized. And then there's a different theorem that says that this is not really about cognitively limited agents at all. It's about cases where the mechanism designer, the social planner, might be secretly changing the rules of the mechanism. And so the thought is it's as though the designer is contacting you on the phone and asking you for information about your preferences, but might secretly be doing something different on the back end. And the key is that the designer is allowed to deviate in any way such that she can be sure that you won't catch the deviation. And it turns out that the strategies that remain optimal when facing not just the designer who plays by the rules, but the designer who makes any such deviation are exactly the obviously dominant strategies. Great, thank you. And, and listeners, of course, can read the paper if they want to find out more about, about either of those two theorems. Um, now, we're going to talk about the story behind the paper. But before we do that, I would like to take the opportunity to ask you just a few questions about the substance of the paper. And my first question concerns the prisoner's dilemma. So, so as you'll probably know, if you run a one-shot prisoner's dilemma in the lab, you'll find that lots and lots of people don't defect, even though defecting is the dominant strategy. So my question is sort of twofold. So first of all, am I right in thinking that defection is not obviously dominant? And second of all, could that explain what's going on in these prisoner's dilemma lab experiments? So you're completely right. In a prisoner's dilemma, one thing that can happen if you cooperate is the other person cooperates. And one thing that can happen if you defect is the other person defects. And so while it's a dominant strategy, of course, to defect, it's not an obviously dominant strategy. Now, does that explain what's going on in the prisoner's dilemma? I think only partially. I think a big, a first order explanation for the prisoner's dilemma is that the preferences we induce with money in the lab are not a full description of real lab subjects' preferences, that we care about fairness, we care about the welfare of the other party, and all of these can lead us to behave in ways, if, if you've got a bigger preferences over more things, then it's, it's not a dominant strategy to defect for the prisoner's dilemma defined over money. Nonetheless, there, there is some fascinating work on prisoner's dilemmas that involves disaggregating, letting one player move first. So what the first player, this player one decides cooperate or defect, then player two sees player one's action and then chooses to cooperate or defect. And so, so I, I should send you the site. I think it's somewhere in the paper. There are these experiments where uh, you can first show people whether what the other player has done and you can see what they would do. And you can compare that to how they would play in the static prisoner's dilemma. And it turns out that there's a reasonable population of people who uh, will violate the sure thing principle. They will defect if they see the other player cooperate. They will defect if they see the other player defect, but they will cooperate if they are not sure what's happening. Right. And there, right, in that game, there's an obviously dominant strategy. If you know what the other player's done, then you're just choosing between sure payoffs. Sure. I mean, I guess I was just thinking now another way of getting at this is presumably if you, if you explain to people, you know, you do two treatments and in one treatment it's normal and the other treatment you explain to people exactly how the contingent reasoning works. I would imagine that does at least somewhat drive up rates of defection, right? Like suggesting oh, again totally. that this is yes. capturing yes. part of it. But I take your point that it might also be about altruistic preferences and, and other things too. Um, mm. 
I, so next, I want to ask a little bit about the limits of your concept. So you say in the paper that this is not meant to exactly track all kinds of cognitive complexity. And I think the example you give is something like a mathematics quiz where you're rewarded if you get the right answer. And you say, well, it might be that we have an obviously dominant strategy here, namely giving the right answer. But on the other hand, you know, for someone who doesn't know the answer, it might not really be clear to them that this is in fact a dominant strategy. So we shouldn't think of this as exactly capturing cognitive sophistication. And I was wondering, is there a sort of opposite example which we can also construct or not? So, so in other words, can we find a case where individuals can, they can very much see that a strategy is dominant, but actually it's not obviously dominant? Right. So you might think that if you're playing somewhat, we know that some people manage to do this for the prisoner's dilemma, right? That there are, it's not like everybody cooperates. And in fact, I think, so it's clear some people do manage to spot it even there. But I guess the question is, is there something where this really pulls apart our intuition? And there, I think it might be that we're dealing with certain really low probability events that would mess up the setwise comparison, right? So you will get $100, would you rather have $100 or nothing, where if the other player shoots himself in the head, we'll flip your decision around. Now, it seems immensely unlikely. We can safely rely on the other player choosing to stay alive, and then it, it seems like there, the fact that you can think of some contingencies is so low probability you can rule them out in advance, but even there, that's not quite a dominant strategy, right? That's iterated deletion of dominated strategies. I see. So that's kind of like an almost dominant strategy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm sure we could construct examples like this, where some low probability event sort of messes up the setwise comparison and our agent feels comfortable ruling it out because it just seems so outlandish. I see. Though I guess just to clarify in those examples, we don't technically have either a dominant or an obviously dominant strategy, right? Right, but I'm, I'm sure we could, if we sat down for a few minutes and tried hard, I'm I sure see. we could construct I an see. example where it would hold, where, okay. where, where you could get a dominant but not obviously dominant strategy, where the thing that was breaking the obvious dominance comparison was some truly outlandish scenario. I see, perfect. Okay, so finally, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the large body of literature which has emerged um, following your paper. And, and I was wondering if I can ask you, and I should say I'm not as familiar with the literature as I should be, though I know that it's uh, outlined very nicely on the website. It's new, it's very young. <laughs> I was going to ask, um, what would you say is the most interesting thing you've learned from one of the most interesting things you've learned from some of this follow-up work? Well, so I think probably one of the, one of the great insights from this follow-up work is by this paper by Marek Pichia and Pete Troyan. And what they do is they, they sort of tug at a thread for something that obvious dominance doesn't capture. So obvious dominance is about capturing a sort of failure to, to think state by state about the world. But there's a sense in which it's not capturing games where it's really difficult to make sort of forward plan, because there are lots of situations you might encounter and you need a plan for each situation. So to take an extreme example, let's imagine we're playing a game of chess and, you know, you're playing white and to, you know, let's conjecture that white has a win forcing strategy in chess. Now, it turns out that if you have a win-forcing strategy, that win-forcing strategy is obviously dominant. Why? Well, if you follow the win-forcing strategy, the worst thing that can happen is you win, definitionally. And if you deviate, well, the best thing that can happen is you win. There aren't things better than winning in chess. And so what that really gets at is that this win-forcing strategy is hard, not because it's hard to reason state by state, but because we can't plan for the bajillions of contingencies that appear in a real chess game. And so Pichia and Troyan have this 
beautiful idea that you can capture different degrees of ability to forward plan. They introduce a sort of family of solution concepts that range from being able to plan at every future history where you're called to play to being able to plan only for right now to various intermediate concepts like being able to plan for right now and for the immediate next time you're called to play. And they show essentially that you can use these to think about different ways games can be simple or complex and produce some really very nice characterization theorems thinking about how these constrain the mechanisms we might construct. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and just in terms of how that ties in then with obvious dominance, so what exactly is the connection then between so that? So the connection sorry, yeah. there is that, is that obvious dominance is in some sense an extreme solution concept in the family that Marek and Pete examine. Obvious dominance corresponds to their version of the solution concept with perfect forward planning power. And so the thought is that if we think that in addition to being bad at reasoning state by state, people have, are, are bad at planning for sort of a multitude of future eventualities, then we might want to introduce stronger concepts that formalize those kinds of, you know, those kinds of constraints. And so notice, it turns out that the ascending auction is not just obviously dominant, it's what they call one-step dominant. You only need to plan one step ahead at a time in order to observe, to play according to your dominant strategy. Why? Because you can say, well, I'll bid for another dollar and then I'll quit. And then when you've bid for another dollar, you can say, wait, hold on. That same logic applies. I'll bid for one more dollar and then I'll quit. And you go on and on and on until eventually you hit. So you don't need to look very far down the game tree to see that you should keep bidding when the price is below your value and quit when it's above. That's really interesting. I'll, I'll certainly have to look at it after the interview. So I'd like to now ask a few questions about the story behind the paper. Um, so Jeremy, can you remember, how did the idea for the paper come about? So I think this paper came about around the point where, you know, my friend Mohammed was going on the market with a paper that we'd written together. And I was sort of casting about for a job market paper. And so this is what must this have been? This, this must have been around 2014, 2015. And at this point, the Federal Communications Commission is gearing up to run a big spectrum auction and a quite novel kind of spectrum auction. And my advisor, uh, Paul Milgram, is involved with, well, helping them design this auction. And the funny thing about this auction is that it's immensely computationally complex. So this auction needs to persuade TV stations to relinquish their rights to broadcast over the air in the United States. You can think of this as there are a whole load of TV stations scattered all around the country. You'd like to pay some of them to stop broadcasting so that we can use that spectrum for sort of more productive ends. And so the, the mission of the auction is to purchase, to buy TV stations off the air and repack the remaining ones into fewer channels. It's a bit like defragmenting a hard drive. But it turns out that it's harder than defragmenting a hard drive because if two TV stations are within range to interfere with each other, you can't assign them to the same channel. And checking whether or not you can satisfy these interference constraints turns out to be a special case of graph color, which is a canonical NP-complete problem in computer science. So it's hard to even check whether you can, for a given set of TV stations, satisfy the constraints you're concerned about. So there's this immensely complicated machine learning algorithm that's going on behind the scenes. So it's more AI than machine learning, but let's not get too far into that distinction. And so there's this complicated algorithm happening behind the scenes. And somehow the Federal Communications Commission needs to explain to all of the TV stations 
why they should bid their value in this auction. And, and one and thing just to interrupt you, was that was that true? Was it the case that they should have bid their value? So, so it, it was in fact true that okay. they should bid their value. And in fact, we can establish this fact with a really simple argument. We can say, so it turns out that the FCC's algorithm had an implementation through a certain kind of descending procurement auction. So the way it works is, you, you know, if you're an individual TV station in the auction, we'll open with a bid of, say, I don't know, $10 million to, to go off the air. And you will say yes or no. And if you say no, you've quit the auction. The game is over for you. You're going to stay on the air. If you say yes, either we will close at the price of 10 million or the algorithm is going to come back with a lower offer and we'll repeat the process again. Now, notice I haven't told you anything else about this algorithm, but you can see. Like, an, uh, that, like a normal ascending auction, right? Like a normal ascending yeah. auction without a further description of the game. Just this description suffices to, to, for you to see your dominant strategy is say yes to offers above your value, say no to all offers below. And so Paul's described this algorithm to us almost exactly as I've described it to you, because it turns out that at this point, the algorithm is substantially uh, proprietary. It's not meant for public consumption yet. And the thing Paul exclaims at a, over the dinner table, he's got these lovely dinners for his students. Paul is very serious about mentorship. Paul exclaims, you see, the thing about our auction is not only is it strategy proof, it's just obvious that it's strategy proof. And at that point, I said, now, I don't know, I don't know what the concept is behind this, but there is a paper to be written <laughs> titled Obviously Strategy Proof Mechanisms. And so I asked Paul, is there a sort of formal meaning to this claim you've made? that it's obvious it's strategy proof. And Paul says no. And so I start working on this. And you can actually kind of see the imprint of that idea on the rest of the paper. Because, you know, there are various ways one might try to go talking about how ascending auctions are simple. You might say, well, at each point in the game, you're making a binary choice. And maybe binary choices are easier than choosing all at once. But the kind of paper I end up writing is a paper that in essence says, when you are given a partial description of a mechanism, sometimes you can still see it strategy proof. And the reason I think I end up writing that paper is because Paul has given me a partial description of the mechanism, right? A mechanism that in its full force requires a PhD in computer science to really get. And nonetheless, I could see there was a dominant strategy. How on earth could that be so? And I guess, I mean, from having, from that initial conversation, to the end of the paper, presumably is quite a long process. So I oh, mean, yes. how long, uh, how long it, in total are we talking? Well, I think it took me, it depends where you talk about the end of the paper, right? To produce the characterization theorems was a matter of, I would say, half a year. But then there's a lot of other stuff that ended up in the paper, you know, are proving that all obviously strategy proof mechanisms in a certain setting are basically clock auctions. That took me another few months. Actually running experiments, that took me much longer. And the whole path to publication, I guess, took about three or four years, three years, I would guess, which is perhaps unusually fast by the standards of today's journals. Which is really saying something. Okay, and um, so in closing, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about academic life more generally. Um, so, so first of all, you're, you know, you're assistant professor at Harvard and you seem to publish quite a bit. And, and I wanted to ask, uh, do you think of yourself as a hardworking person? And do you have any tips you could share with, with listeners about how they themselves can remain productive? when doing academic work? Well, so I find it difficult to tell whether I'm 
hardworking. In a real sense, when you're, when you're doing serious proofs, it's often true that you don't have more than... A, a day when you have five, six hours of real concentration is an amazing day. And my friends who are mathematicians tell me that's very much their experience too. So there's a sense in which if you look only at the time that I'm working at the board, I'm surely not. All things considered, I have a lot of time to not be working at the board. But there's a sense in which ideas sort of hang around in the back of my mind all the time, right? I'll be cycling on my bike and I'll miss my turn because I'm trying to burrow away at something. And so I guess part of this is to say, really for me, the, the, the thing in grad school was learning to take breaks when I needed a break. I ended up, you know, it, around the middle of grad school, I fell into the mistake of being stuck on math problems, feeling like being stuck reflected an inadequacy on my part. And that if only I could prove tonight the lemma I was after, then that would show that I was a good economist. Uh, and it turns out that when you try to do that, you're tired, you make mistakes, right? And what, what would happen is I would wake the next morning to realize that my proof had, you know, a number of errors in it. That would, I would spend more time unpicking the errors than I would have spent writing the proof anew. After having that, I had that experience for a few times. I said, no, actually, being conscious of your own mental state, be, you know, being willing to say, now is the time I need to pause or take a nap is actually pretty important to the process. Being able to view yourself more as a, as, as a kind of runner where you need to be informed to run and there's no point pushing past the point of injury and shepherding that resource, I think, is at least for theorists an important part of the process. Well, so it does sound to me like you are quite a hardworking person, but um, one thing I was wondering, so do you have a lot of structure or do you sort of just, you know, do your four or five hours when you're feeling like it or do you really book out working I'm going to work this time every day or, or how do you do it oh um well see I'm very bad with calendars as you might have realized trying to uh, get me on this podcast so my strategy is mostly to be bad with calendars to let that naturally then create large chunks of time that are unstructured and to work on problems that I love and therefore it's a natural way to fill those blocks of time Great. So my final question is something that I also asked uh, Ara Rubinstein when I, when I interviewed him for this podcast. So when I asked him, I, I somewhat inevitably asked him what his views were on the state of economics. And you can probably imagine what his answer to that was. And I thought I might ask you the same questions. So, so what do you think about the kind of questions we're asking in economics? And also, do you think we're sort of using the right methods and techniques in order to, to answer those questions? So I'm really excited about the way economics is today. I think it's, it's certainly taken a much more data-driven turn, and that's great. Uh, and we've gotten a lot more serious about thinking about how we get at causality, and that's great too. Now, as always, there's specialization and comparative advantage, and we've specialized quite far in the sense that I think economists have felt we're so good at thinking about causality that we discount descriptive studies, even descriptive studies of important things. But with that caveat, I think the empirical turn in economics has been good not only for applied work, but also for theory. Because ultimately, it's not much good to do theory unless you're trying to describe the world. And unless we've got a really healthy empirical side to social science, we don't, in fact, have enough stylized facts for us to even write interesting theory. The, the world is weird. It's weird in ways that we might not predict, and certainly that we might not predict sitting in our armchairs. And having that engagement with the world that, have it, you know, that, that, that empirical work brings is a way of forcing us to think about things that we wouldn't have gotten onto otherwise. My guest today has been Shengwu Li. Shengwu, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Cheers, it's been lovely.